morning, folks. Welcome back to another episode of Coffee with Friends. Today, we have a special guest named Kaylin Dion, who is an author. We will be discussing some of his experiences and why he writes. He's published multiple books on poetry, and he is somebody who is very public and open about trauma. So I look forward to that. With that being said, this live stream may discuss trauma of all sorts to include all types of abuse. Viewers and listeners may find it unsettling and triggering. The guests on our live streams reflect a diverse set of values, morals, and ethics that may not reflect the morals, values, and ethics of the Misfit Amish. If this live stream causes you distress, please seek support from your trusted folks and qualified mental health professionals as needed. And also, please cease listening until you are able to listen better. With that being said, let's meet Kaylin. Good morning, Kaylin. How are you doing? Good morning. Am I saying your name right? You are saying it absolutely correct. Yeah, that's, that's, the, way to, that's the way to do it. Um, I'm doing well today. I um, I woke up this morning. I got my coffee. I've got it in my big pink cup, which is my favorite See? out of my disposable coffee cups. Yeah, I my cup. And for those who can't read it, this is what my cup says. We see you're back on the Wednesday night prayer list. Oh, nice. Uh huh. And it has nice. some, uh, you know, some photos of like plain dressing women. Oh, okay. So it's it's thematically consistent with your. Yep. With your 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 like, mine just says Starbucks, and then it says decaf, shots, syrup, milk. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of these like it's it's a reusable disposable, and it's they're they're like I can use them, you know, and wash them, but it's mm -hmm. not like a you know, it's not a fancy cup, but it, it works. Those are the best. Those yeah, are amazing. It's good if I have to leave on the fly, and I'm I tend to do that because I, I live such a fluid existence. I tend to just like I'm going to go for a walk right now, and I don't live on any kind of a schedule. I do my writing, and I sell my books, and I um I manage my platform, and I'm always I'm always like doing it. There's no real clear line between work and play and home and and travel, and all of it is one big amalgam of of you know experience. Yeah, like it's it's all like intertwined and oh yeah intersects in various ways in it like so with that being said like you were telling me earlier that you wrote something this morning like would you like to like introduce yourself and like read that yeah okay so um me Ooh. Uh, i'm kaylin dion i'm an author um i explore trauma i explore uh oppression i explore um the way that women have been unfairly portrayed and treated in history in some of my writing. Um, I explore uh, the ideology and philosophy and the way that it impacts our behavior, the way that it impacts the way we see the world, how systems of oppression tend to reinforce themselves and they, they feed off of themselves. They create agents and then they the, those people evolve to become part of that system and reinforce the systems they were born into. So I, I do a lot about trauma cycles. Um, I started off as a poet. Uh, I was writing love poems. I was I was deeply inspired by Rumi and Gibran, and um, I loved Paramahansa Yogananda, um, a lot of Eastern philosophy, and I, I was interested in religion. Um, I read every book of religion I could get my hands on in my teens and my early twenties, and I um, I was subject to like a harassment campaign by other writers, and this led me to explore abuse, and it led me to explore trauma. And then I started exploring my childhood abuse and then the, it kind of evolved into what it is now. That's when my work started resonating with people and my audience took off. I think I had about 30,000 followers back then. This was, you know, 2019. Mm -hmm. um, and now I have over a million individual followers between my platforms. Um, so, yeah, so there's just a lot of exploring trauma. There's a lot of exploring what happened in my childhood home and, and it's not always done in a direct way. It's done through a poetic lens, you know? Some I write some poetry, I write some prose, but um, everything that I've been through is, finds its way into my work in one way or another. And, and I, was, I was writing this morning. I wrote a piece about um, people who consistently disrespect you. I, wrote, I was writing about microaggressions. I was writing about boundaries. Um, and it seems that people have, you know, at least the people that I engage, the people that I interact with have seemingly become more and more hyper assertive. I think there's a, a heavy focus on individualism in society and where 
I do feel that we're moving in the right direction. We're dismantling, dismantling some of the systemic um, evils. I believe that the everyday evils, a lot of those have, have kind of proliferated in that, that in a, on a social level, uh, as far as our behavioral mechanics, we've, we've gotten really comfortable with mistreating each other. And so boundaries have become increasingly important. You know, I used to hear people talk about manners and now I hear people talk about boundaries and boundaries are at the edge of the comfort zone and manners are at the center of the comfort zone, you know? And so I increasingly, I find myself having to increasingly focus on boundaries in order to prevent my own damage. Mm -hmm. Um, and so this piece is about that. This is, this is what I was exploring this morning. And um, is it okay if I give it a read? So there is no one in this world so valuable to me that I will keep them around when they consistently mistreat me. No one. If you are repeatedly disrespectful, you're not going to be here for long. And everybody has got a reason. Believe me, I know. Every negative behavior has a point of rationalization. But that doesn't make it okay. Sometimes it happens because of a heightened emotional response. Sometimes it happens because they have harbored contempt or resentment. But in general, people know when they're being crappy to someone. And I think it's really rare that someone who is bis being mistreated misses the fact that they're being mistreated, even when it's hard to identify exactly how or why. Sometimes mistreatment is quite covert. It's not always open hostility. A lot of people do it with a sleight of hand, subtly using microaggressions, passive aggressive comments, backhanded compliments, or mockery. Whenever I start wondering whether someone is laughing with me or at me, I get away from that person. If, whenever I talk to a specific individual, I leave feeling drained, demeaned, or disrespected, I stop honoring this person with my presence. I can't change the way that people act, but I can restrict their access. Something I see a lot in online spaces are what I call hit and run interactions. People who will only show up to argue, people who refuse to have an honest dialogue, people who use a straw man argument and won't admit when it's called out. They pop in with a rude comment or a statement meant to undermine the validity of your personal life experience. And when you ask them to clarify, to elaborate, or when you try to show them that what they're saying simply isn't true, they refuse to acknowledge you any further. They stonewall the conversation. And if their disrespect makes you visibly upset, they often act like you are the one with the problem. <clears throat> I'm too old and my time is too short to deal with this kind of BS. You get a couple chances with me. <clears throat> I will send you a message. I will shoot you a text. I will sit you down and ask you what the deal is. But it seems like it's almost always the same thing. It feels like I'm banging my head against a wall, like I'm speaking to an inanimate object. Most people are going to keep doing whatever it is that they do. And you pointing out how it's hurtful isn't going to change a thing. I have a little bit of benefit of the doubt allotted for everyone that I meet, everyone that I know. But I do this so I can live with myself. So I'm not the one being unreasonable. And once it is spent, I have nothing for you. I will move out, move up, move over and move on with my life. I will forgive you or I will forget you and I will never speak to you again. Life is far too fleeting to deal with people who don't honor your time or your space. If you want to join me at my table, make sure that you come with respect. Thank you. That's, yeah. um, oh, let me just say this. It's hashtag entirely too fucking relatable. <laughs> let's, let's really go there. Like, let's, let's really go there. It's too fucking relatable for so many reasons. Like when you talk about feeling like it banging against your head against the wall, you're talking about that. That feeling is something I have been combating for most of my life. Yeah. The feeling like I see people doing these horrible things. I see people perpetuating the cycles of trauma. I see people not understanding that just because like maybe, for example, you and I, Kaylin, we may hold very different values. Very, very different values. But we can respect those values. And where is society 
in at large doing that where they're respecting each other's values because like you said if you want to stick around love is respect love is actually accepting you and accepting your life experiences for what they were and when people are continually tone policing you and gaslighting you and telling you about your life experiences where does that leave you as a person, it, where does that leave you? It's it's hard to have an honest dialogue. It's hard to like, it's hard to open up. It, it creates roadblocks in conversation. And I see this. I see so many tripwires that people put into conversation, you know, because they don't agree with an idea. And I think it's important that we, we consider an idea without necessarily accepting it. You know what I mean? I think it's important that we host a space, but people have gotten so assertive that it's almost to the point where where I see a lot of people opening with hostility when they don't agree with something. And it's it, that's why we, we almost have to use that block feature. And I don't care if you're talking about in online spaces or in day-to-day -day life, you have to, to, to save your sanity. And it can make, like if you have one person in a group of 10 people and they're constantly interrupting and objecting and they aren't willing to consider anything outside of their, their realm, um, it can, destroy the the productivity of the whole entire dialogue it's not just that it's not just that you aren't reaching them they can obstruct your ability to reach other people as well they can obstruct and so finding a balance between you know like am i being receptive am i being open to them as well and am i not tolerating abuse and this is where we talk about you know boundaries boundaries become more and more important in my life and i don't know if it was always like this or if the prevailing cultural themes have made it you know, I, I often contemplate that. Is this is this because of a, a prevailing cultural theme of our time? Or has this always been like this? And as if people age up, you know, they move away from people because they're mistreated. And I think there's a little bit of both there. I think there's probably a little bit of both. Um, I would imagine so. Yeah. I can't imagine that it doesn't affect you. Like, I, I mean, like prevailing cultural themes but also like it doesn't affect you the longer you live the more experiences you have and so because of those experiences because those experiences shape how you see the world around you and how you navigate the world and how do you make sense of the world right like so because yeah. of that like i would imagine it's it's a combination of both it's a combination of all of those things yeah well and so i imagine previous generations as the younger generations have come up and they had had new ideas. Previous generations probably had similar feelings, not in the same exact way. And they didn't manifest in the same exact way. And I see this potentially causing like the way that we, we collectively go through ideas. I, I could see like a yo-yo effect between collectivism and individualism, between focus on the inner world and focus on the external world. Um, I see all of these different ways in which we are always yo-yoing. And I bet you if we were able to study the prevailing cultural themes throughout history, if we really had a, like a, and, and this, we could probably do this in a thousand years. I don't think we have the kind of database to do it now, uh, historically. I think we would see the different factors that impact these, these yo-yo effects that we have. You know what I mean? This pendulum swing that we are constantly going through. And I, I think we would find thematic consistencies, you know? Probably. We yeah. would also probably see those those consistencies. Like if we had a database like that, we would be able to see those consistencies like shift and all like we would be able to see how humanity exactly evolved. Yeah. Um, so we have a couple comments. This one says that hits the nail on the head. Reminds me of what a relative of mine has often said. Love is respect. And the next one says, thank you for this. I wasn't sure I'd be sticking around this morning, but this is so valuable. Thank you, Emma. And the last one says, we may hold very different values, yet we can respect one another's values. Extend respect. Yeah. 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 That part. Thank you. It's, it's, so, it's so important to be, to be open and to be able to listen and to be able to allow people like people really do open up and people are, are entirely different people they're entirely different composites personality wise emotionally when they feel heard and if you can give people the space to feel heard if we can create a culture where we did honor each other's differences and hosted space for it i think 
I think we could grow collectively a lot more. Do you think, think that to be human and the one universal truth of humanity is that to be human is to desire the feeling of being connected to each oh, other? I think, I think it's one of our prime operatives. I think because of the fact that we were pack animals at one point, you know, if mm -hmm. you believe in that, if you believe in that, that kind of a, an evolution that take on an evolution, um, I do believe that that's a, a prime directive. I feel that we need to socialize and that um, if when we find ourselves in isolation, when we find ourselves uh, disconnected, I, I think we tend to develop unhealthy ways of seeing the world. I think it's it's how we judge right and wrong, you know, like the way we're socialized when we're young, it greatly impacts how we judge right and wrong the people that we're exposed to. Mm -hmm. um, the environments that we're exposed to. So all of, all of these things shape us and then they continuously reshape us throughout our lives. So it's absolutely, it's, it's one of the main operatives. I would say like if there's 10, you know, 10 main operatives, and I, I wouldn't even know how to identify some of the others. If I sat down and thought about it, I could, but it, well, it's gotta be one of the top 10. I, I mean, I just think that like part of, part of like my experiences like really learning about ways that people feel connected and heard and seen and and it's part of why I bought your books as like a way of like because to me some of your work on abuse really really spoke to me yeah um it spoke to me on a very deep level because it made it very clear how abuse and society intersect and when you're an abuse survivor and you're placed into a public eye or you discuss it, or even as you're going about your daily life with the people that you're around, it can feel really, really isolating if you don't know other people that have also experienced abuse. If you don't have, you know, the support to navigate this trauma and to be able to find meaning in your life. So like, let me ask you this, like, how did you find meaning in your life? Like, is your writing a part of that? Oh, it's, I mean, aside from being a father and, you know, a friend, <laughs> it's probably the most important and most meaningful thing that I, I feel I've done. Um, you know, I spent a lot of years, I was, I was a roofer um, and I was uh, a waiter and I was a bartender and I kind of worked in the trades and I worked at restaurants and they were honest it was honest work and they were honest jobs, but with the, um, the advent of, of social media, with the, the proliferation of meme culture, with the proliferation of, of poetry, I was able to really do something that I had been doing this whole time, but all of a sudden it had a value. All of a sudden other people saw it as something that they wanted to, to participate. They wanted to be a part of and that, that solidarity. Um, so it, it's always been a, a way of exploring myself. It's always been, a therapeutic tool. It's, in fact, the, for, for big chunks of my life, I didn't go to therapy. Um, I was raised in a household where we were kind of skeptical of those institutions. You know, my mother, um, my grandmother was, had a diagnosis and my mother always felt that it was unfair. And I think she was probably right. She, she felt like my grand, my mother's father had passed away when she was really young and my grandmother's children were taken away from them from her for a short period of time. And my mom was very young. And so she thought that this diagnosis, and it was a very common one in the 1960s, early 60s was schizophrenia, is what they said. But she was having an absolutely normal reaction to being a woman in a world that did not give her economic mobility and losing her husband and losing her stability. She had an absolutely normal reaction. And so my mother was skeptical. So for big periods of my time, big, big chunks of my life, I did not, I was skeptical. I was raised to be skeptical of psychiatry, of therapy. And um, I'm losing where I was going with this. <laughs> oh, uh, you were talking about how writing was therapeutic for you. And you oh, yes. For yourself. So, so, yeah. So it's been, for me, you know, during the times when I wasn't in therapy, I've been in active therapy for a long time now. Um, my writing was my therapist. It allowed me, it, it was a sounding board and where I could hear the way that I saw the world, where I can understand my own experiences, where I can understand my trauma. When I was angry, it gave me a place to put that anger that didn't hurt anybody else. You know, when I was sad, it gave me a place to express that sadness where I wasn't being shamed for it. And it was the first person 
whoever listened to me talk about, you know, being a victim. It was the first person who didn't openly shame me because like my family, they didn't want to, you know, they, they felt that it was accusatory to even talk about the abuse that happened in, in our family home. They felt that it was like it indicted people. It made them complicit, the, the people who didn't protect, the people who didn't run to my aid. Um, and so there was, there was some like, there was some serious like shame pushed onto me when I, when I did explore publicly. And it, when I would try to talk about it, even like, I think I started talking about it when I was 14 or 15. I'm like, I've been getting beat up, you know, like I've been getting beat, beat, beat. And um, so it's, it's been that, that first person to really listen to me was the paper. It was the pen. It was my, my work. And so, yeah, it's, it's absolutely, it's a powerful therapeutic tool. It's a, a powerful self-exploration tool. And it, it's the biggest part of my purpose besides being a father, you know? Mm -hmm. So thank you for sharing that. That's really powerful. May I ask you a question? Yeah. So do you think that your family, for example, when it came to like having this immense amount of shame and you can't talk about it. Do you think that it was more or less like a, a not only shaming you, but did you ever feel like it was your fault? Oh, it's, I. Were you told it was your fault? Oh yeah, yeah, outright. I was, I was told for a lot of years and there was behavioral manifestations that were negative, it was. There was, it does create, it created a lot of chaos, you know? But when I look back and I, I look at, like, I try to analyze who was the primary antagonist and who was defending. And I, I, I think I was four years old the first time there was a, a significant violent incident, you know? Um, and um, yeah, I was, I was told over and over and over again. And I did have, like, as a teenager, I had negative behavioral manifestations. And then when I had my son, you know, I, I leveled out a little bit. I had to step up his mom wasn't around as much in the beginning. She, she's been a great mom. She came in later, but you know, in the, the early days we were kids, we were kids having kids. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I was, it, I was outright told it was me um, over and over and over again. And I think that, you know, I think my mother probably held on to that even, even to her death. She probably felt that a, a big part of it was me, but you, you start to, you develop unhealthy coping mechanisms. And if, somebody isn't around to show you if they aren't around to point out the cognitive distortions if they aren't around to show you the way that your behavioral manifestations and your your maladapted coping techniques are harmful it's really hard to break through those and this is this is something that therapy has helped me do and this is something that self-exploration when i talked to other people and i looked at my own behavioral manifestations and i had some bad relationships where where my own behavioral manifestations were were not good i didn't know what love was supposed to look like. I didn't know I had nothing healthy to model love after, you know? And these are things that can be improved. You absolutely, those, 100%. Those can be changed. You're, you're yeah. absolutely 100% right. But when you talk about this, like, have you been able to navigate? And, and I know like from some of your writings, you've written about this topic specifically, but I think my audience could really benefit from hearing about this. So if this is too far, don't, don't answer it. But have you been able to navigate the idea of forgiveness and healing as perpetuated by society um, in regards to that, when in fact, like you were a child, you didn't do anything to deserve this. It was not your fault. And again, you didn't ask to be abused. Nobody asked to be abused. It was not your fault. And when society has this idea of like, you must heal, but you develop these coping skills and these coping skills, they keep you alive. They kept you alive. They kept you alive for many years. How have you been able to navigate that? So I think that's like, there's a many fold, like forgiveness. I don't think it happens as a singular thing. I think what we're doing is we're trying to find peace within ourselves. We're trying to be comfortable. We're trying to be able to have interactions. And then we're deciding whether we want to continue relationships or whether we want to break bonds with some of these people. And most of the people I, I tried for a lot of years, like I have relationships, very, very superficial relationships with, with my sibling, my brother, 
and my father. Um, <clears throat> I have a great relationship with my sister. Um, we are really close. We can talk openly about things. She doesn't see eye to eye with me on everything that happened, but pretty much there's an open dialogue and we're honest with each other. But with my father and my brother, there's a, I've, I found that for me to be comfortable in my state and in my relationship with them, I have to keep it light. And th there's, there's a lot of factors into this. There are some really like core values are very different there. Um, and, uh, and the way we see the world and then the way we see the events that happened. And they're, they're still kind of into that. Like life is hard and you're going to get beat and you're going to like kind of old machismo masculine mentalities and those are just not how I see the world. They're just not how I interface with the world. So I, I feel good with my relationships, but I understand what they are. They're, they're not, I don't have deep relationships with them. I don't have deep connections with them. I can't explore the way that I see the world. I can't explore the nuances of, of my views on politics and of my views on, uh, you know, my own expressions of my views on trauma. They can, they can read, how I explore the world if they choose to. I don't think they would. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, forgiveness is such an individual thing. And it's not like the way that it's pushed is unhealthy, I think. I think like putting the focus on the person who has been wronged for forgiveness. I see forgiveness as an opportunity for the person internally. And I see an apology as an opportunity for the offender. Um, and so for me, like forgiveness, what it would mean, like as a functional mechanism, as a behavioral mechanism, would be releasing resentment. And an apology would be an opportunity to reflect on my behavior and grow. And so I kind of feel like forgiveness belongs to the forgiver and the apology belongs to the apologizer. And I feel like we often focus on the wrong area there. Um, yeah. So I, I have another question and I'm really going to go there. Okay, go for it. Have you ever heard of the practice of unforgiveness? Unforgiveness? Uh-huh. We're not talking about like a Clint Eastwood movie. <laughs> no, we're talking about I have literally, um, I have known people in my life who say, if forgiveness means that I will never talk of him, of, of the abuse again, I do not forgive you. If forgiveness means that there is absolute silence around what you did to me, I do not forgive you. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think anybody should be pushed to do that. I think oftentimes forgiveness is used to push people into situations where they are repeatedly exposed to abuse. I, I've seen people like re-exposed and re-traumatized over and over and over again and then scrutinized in, in the process of their own forgiveness. And I'm like, how are you scrutinizing somebody who is being graceful? Like this is a grace we extend people. This is a... You know what I mean? This is a this is not something that is a given. This is not something that is automatic. This is a cultural standard that we push, and it it is supposed to be an act of grace. And how are you going to lack grace to the person extending the grace? How are you going to scrutinize and re-traumatize people over and over and over again because of this mechanism? And, and once again, like that's why it's such a personal thing. You have to determine whether or not this is even safe for you. Like, because the first step, you cannot forgive somebody if they are continuously dangerous for you. You can't do it. It's impossible, I think. I don't, you can't be like, this is okay. And then you're in that environment that is causing you damage. So, can I share something with you? You absolutely. In 2004, when I reported the abuse that I experienced, my own egg donor wrote letters that talked about me being unforgiving and bitter and, and vengeful. It's literally part of that letter is read by the district attorney and sins of the Amish. But there's, there's way more there. But when I talk about it, as in like, I take back my voice. I don't feel like it's anybody's business to even ask me if I've forgiven her because I feel like this is my journey in living in the aftermath of that. 
I also knew for a fact that more than 10 years after I had escaped the community, there was somebody who also escaped from that community. And they told me the community is still talking about me being so unforgiving. Yeah. I also knew that 15 years later, a very close person to me told me, and I quote, you tore about the family and the community by reporting the abuse. So when you start talking about these issues and these types of issues, I don't feel like it's just my story that's like that. I feel like this is in general indicative of a larger problem in society of how do we treat abuse survivors. And regardless of what part of the world people are in, There are so many places where abuse survivors come forward or they're trying to find safety and they get told that they need to forgive and they get told that they need to heal to the point I feel like healing is weaponized. Have you experienced any of that? Yeah, yeah. How are you going to tell somebody to heal while the knife is still in their back? Like, oh, you got to heal. No, you gotta you heal. heal. No, yeah. if you're cutting off my fingers, I can't heal from that trauma. Like that's yeah. not how it works. And they're like, turn around and look at me, and you're like, wait a minute, you've got a knife in my back. Yeah, it's no. I I, I think that the idea of healing, and so I think a lot of people are focused on um, the appearance of being healed rather than the actual process of healing, and they're focused on because people people get uncomfortable, and it is. It's it's they are. There, there is a level of being complicit. You know what I mean? For the people who are, were peripheral to these experiences and were peripheral because it does, it is so often, it doesn't always happen behind a closed door where no one knows. It oftentimes, it's they turn blind eyes or somebody else joins in on the behavior because young people model their behavior off of them. Yeah, young people model behaviors. And let me just clarify so that people can really understand what he was saying that may be listening to this. If I heard correctly what you're talking about, people are complicit. So you're talking about my own mother who sat there and told me it was my fault. I didn't fight back hard enough. I didn't pray hard enough. And I most certainly, you know, laughed too loudly. And I talked too much to boys. And this is why I was being essayed as a child. And when I talk about it, and I talk about it like this, people get angry at me because I have emotions in my voice. You're talking about trauma. However I talk about it, there is no right or wrong way to talk about it. Anger is powerful. Anger is a powerful tool of transformation. I think second to love, it's probably the most powerful tool of transformation, you know? And um, and so it's it absolutely, like when you're uncomfortable and all of these negative, emotional and behavioral manifestations, all of them serve a practical purpose. Um, all of them. Yeah. Like, 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 so, so they, they are trying to make you move from where you're uncomfortable to a place of where you're comfortable. They are trying to make you change. They're trying to make. How am I supposed to be comfortable with the fact that I was literally tortured and falsely imprisoned in my own home for most of my childhood? Yeah. I was raped repetitively as a result of that. Yeah. I'm supposed to be comfortable with that? No, no. But I, you I, want I, me to be comfortable. I'm supposed to be comfortable so you don't have your senses assaulted. Yes, I'm yeah. being loud. I will be as loud as I need to. Thank you. Yeah, no, and, and, um, and good, good, because I do think, I think, there is catharsis in expressing it. And I think that when other people see it, like like you can, injustice is one of those, anger is the sound of injustice. You know, it is, it is, the, it is literally the tone that injustice is spoken in. And I think people can see when they see somebody hurting like this, people who are empathetic, and they can, they can learn from that. Like anger is so powerful that you don't have to experience something. You can learn from someone else if you listen to it through the right lens but people don't want to change. So people go after the anger. They immediately fault the person who's expressing that. They expect level stoicism from people, from survivors of abuse. And, and well, 
like chemically, that's almost impossible. You look at like the sympathetic nervous system and what cortisol does to it, particularly when you're exposed to it as a child and the way that it, it, it literally affects your, your response to everything from people's tone to maybe a specific song to being in a very specific setting. And it, it, you can't have level stoicism. It's almost I impossible. to all of us, but this is a great comment. I'm just going to read it. Yeah. It's a choice to release. It is not agreeing to be in their life. It is not agreeing to be still and not speak about it. And, and I feel like I'd like to add to that. It is not agreeing to not have emotions about the injustice that you experienced. Yeah. Forgiveness is feeling all the feelings and choosing to set free the offender and block them. Forgiveness is saying it hurt me and it hurt me badly. But if you don't wish to release the hurt, it is not time yet. It comes back to another choice later. It's not once and done. It's repetitive. Yeah. There you so have it. And sometimes holding on to that hurt is the only thing that protects us too. Like when you're in that environment still, holding on to that pain is, is how we stay away from those behaviors that are repeatedly exposing us to trauma. Mm -hmm. Don't yeah. be comfortable right now. Come on, keep talking. Or do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, Rage Against the Dying of Light by Dylan Thomas. Thank you. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. I that is love a really that saying. I really, really love that saying. But, you know, like, so, like, the other part is, is, like, you were talking about the complicity. So, am I also not supposed to be angry that there was a medical doctor, a nurse, who did an interview on me as a child, and they brought in my mother to, to translate, and she lied to them? Am I not supposed to be angry about that? Yeah, the system. Am How I not often... supposed to be angry about the, there's more, the neighbors? Yeah. The neighbors who suspected before my dad died when I was five that I was being abused. And they did nothing, not a single thing. Or the neighbors who knew when I was a teenager at the last Amish home that I lived at. They literally knew and then invited me to dinner after I reported it to tell me they knew. But their Amish business relationships were more important. I'm not supposed to feel anything about that? You absolutely are. I'm, I'm yeah. sorry. No. How do we collectively as a society treat survivors of abuse? And why is it that we sit there and we watch children and we suspect that they're being abused and we do absolutely nothing? What kind of person are you if you do nothing? I'm on my front. No, <laughs> I, I struggle with that. I love my mom. Like I love my mom and she was the, one of the best humans, most compassionate, kind humans I've ever known in my life. And, but to know that she did, like she did, she didn't get out of that environment. It took her a long time at least, you know, when I was in my young teens. And then, and then, you know, with my father, I, I love my father too. You know, it's a really messed up relationship. I still seek his approval. And I watched him go on to, to have what looked appeared to me to be a healthy family life. And then, then I go, you get this, why me? Like, why did you do this to me and not to my siblings? Why did you do this to me and not to my stepmothers? And that's, that's a hard one. That's a really tough. It's a really, really difficult. Yeah. I, I mean, like, I'm horrified for you because you were just as worthy of having, like, what looks like a healthy family life as, like, whoever, you know, he created that with. Well, there was definitely a degree of it, like with my siblings, and I can, I can point out specific behaviors like raising a fist and laughing in your face, you know, like that one. Everybody in the family remembers that, or stomping and going ah, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, why why did I get it so much worse? And uh, so that's those are those are hard ones. And then you internalize it too, you know, like learning not to internalize all of these circumstances, learning well, to not make it personal. Yeah. As a kid, where do you learn how your coping skills? When all you have around you is unhealthy coping skills, when you're learning to stay alive, you're learning that if I do this, this could end my life. So where do you learn healthy coping skills as a kid? Yeah, and, and like that, you know, the, I think epigenetics too. You you have their programmed responses 
you know, our, our epigenetics programs us based on all of the experience of our ancestors, everybody who led up to you. And so you can fall into patterns that might not even be your own. And that's an interesting thing. You could fall into patterns, even if you aren't exposed to something that could potentially kill you, even if you're just being verbally abused over and over again, that can initiate a, a, a deeper level of fight or flight instinct. It can permanently impact your sympathetic nervous system. It can dim your parasympathetic nervous system's ability to calm you. You know, it can, it can make it hard to like you, like what is it? The, um, the vagus nerve is how we, how we do self-soothing and it can make it so it, it's not receptive to some of the methods of self-soothing that most people do, that most people learn when they're young, when they're upset, when they're distressed. And all of a sudden we can't, we can't deescalate. We can't. And this is where so many of the, the, you know, these disorders come from, but they're actually per perfectly proportionate responses to trauma. Well, then, furthermore, like, so I was diagnosed with chronic PTSD when I was, like, 19 years old. Yeah. That's a heavy diagnosis for a 19-year-old. Yeah. But regardless, like, what you're saying is, like, you know, where it's a perfectly normal response. Here's the thing is how people respond, and I want to remind people that how people respond to trauma can vary. Because yeah. we are all different in that way. The other thing is, is like two people can have the same experience and one can have PTSD and the other one cannot. There are yeah. even certain like um, predispositions, certain factors that can predisposition you into being more likely to have PTSD if you're exposed to a traumatic event. And it's because Absolutely. of all of those things. And then the other thing is, is so like it causes neurological changes in your brain and you start thinking about the neurobiology of trauma when you start thinking about that and the neurobiological changes in your brain, that's also why it's a perfectly normal response. Because like you were saying, the parasympathetic nervous system responds, right? But it also does that because of the, the in layman's terms, the wires in your brain are transmitting information, even if you don't actively recognize it. Yeah. Like, have you ever been like walking down the street and you see somebody and like your whole body is on alert? Yeah. Yeah. And you're just like the hair on the back of your neck stands up. Like you're like for me, my stomach starts feeling like I'm about to throw up. I'm like, Ooh, let me get out of here. Yeah. I got to get to safety. Yep. It's, and it's, it is, that's your, that's your, that's your nervous system responding to a perceived threat. And sometimes you can, and it, I think this is one of the reasons why we model behavior too, is um, your body learns to respond a very specific way. It has a very distinct chemical response to something it perceives as a threat, whether or not a threat is there, you know, and that, that's how it learns to. And so some people, you know, some of these, these personality disorders or mood disorders and some of this is, is people replaying traumatic incidents, even when there isn't a, an actual threat, just a perceived threat. And it's, it's really like, it's, it's tragic. You look at the trauma cycle and these people were exposed to prolonged levels of cortisol. They were, they were, they were not producing, the, their chemistry was not right because they were in a dangerous or an unstable environment. And then they grow up to have the similar behaviors or similar manifestations, whatever unhealthy coping mechanisms they needed to deal with the unhealthy behaviors of the people that were abusing them. So it's not always necessarily the same manifestations. Sometimes it's the opposite manifestation. Sometimes you learn to fawn and you're incredibly empathetic and you're very, very like uh, kind and you're very, very generous and you're, but you end up becoming a little bit of a doormat. Or sometimes you, you go into that freeze response and you dissociate, you get into dissociative episodes or you go into fight and you're you're hyper vigilant you're you're always on and you're ready to to engage in a fight these are ways that the body learns to to you know adapt to the environments and then sometimes we get stuck in them sometimes we get stuck in those responses another one is i've i've recently taken a trauma training where it was by dr janine fisher i think and yeah. she talked about the shame trauma response Thank you for explaining that, by the way. It's really good. Like, we need to have that conversation. And then I want to segue into, like, coping mechanisms. Yeah. Because um, oh. we have a comment that really is a perfect segue into that. But one of, the, one of the things that she talked about is, like, shame as a trauma response. And people get stuck in shame yeah. because of 
all of these factors again. And I feel like for um, many survivors coming from various communities, Amish communities specifically, like what I have observed is that many of us experience a deep level of shame in regards to it. And so I think it's kind of important too that people can present with like one or all of those responses. They can, and, and those responses can look differently. Like you said, like whatever unhealthy or maladaptive skills you learn as a kid, those can like really translate into as an adult, unless you have learned other skills, you might utilize or employ those skills. You might always be doing that thing that you did as a kid to keep you alive. Yeah. Yeah. Mine was escapism, you know, like it was, it was a, it was a book. It was a, you know, as I got older in my later teens, it was a video game. And then when I hit my twenties and I could do it, it, it became drinking, you know, thank God I'm, you know, coming up on three years sober without a, without a sip of alcohol. Ooh, and, congratulations. Uh, but it's, that is a mallet. Thank you. Um, that is a maladapted coping mechanism. It was a method of escaping. And oftentimes it was the only way I could escape me. I was trying to escape my internal world and that internal world would feel chaotic or conflicted. You know, I, I would get triggered and I didn't know what was going on at the time. I just knew that I would get incredibly uncomfortable. I knew that I would get, and I hadn't worked on untangling this giant ball. This, it's like a string ball, a yarn ball, uh -huh. of unhealthy coping mechanisms and trauma <laughs> responses. And now I've, I've, you know, I still got a big ball. I still do more than most people, I think. But, you know, I have the tools like as a writing, as an artist, I have the tools to untangle it and I can explore in real time the way that I feel about something. And I can even get feedback. I can see the flaws in my own logic and it's happened. There, there are a hundred pieces of writing that I won't share anymore, at least because they aren't how I feel. I had somebody share one the other day. I'm like, no, I wanted to be like, no, don't share that. And then I'm like, no, I wrote it. It's okay. You know, but it's not, it's not where I'm at. You know, that's the other thing is, as you navigate, I'm close to somebody who also has massive amounts of trauma. And sometimes I look at like how I navigate the world versus how they navigate the world. And it's so like vastly different, but it's also like we are in such vastly different places and yeah. how we navigate our trauma and how much trauma we've untangled. Yeah. I've had, I've had by and large, like approximately about 20 years of therapy. It's been about 20 years since I first went to therapy. Yeah. Um, this person grew up in an environment similar to yours, and they've given me permission to talk about this the way that I am talking about this. Uh, but they, they have to overcome that mental barrier of not all therapists want to do is label you as a diagnosis or not what they like therapy could really help me. And so I wondered if you had any advice for people to um, who are seeking to navigate that type of barrier to accessing therapy. Oh, well, you know, there's so many, there's so many um, factors there, you know, like economic mobility affects our ability to get therapy. Uh, pre-existing conditions can affect your ability to get therapy. If you have a diagnosis, some some doctors will refuse therapy unless you take medication. They consider it non-compliance. That can affect your access to get therapy. Um, it's it's so hard. But if you can't get into an actual therapist, join a community, join a, a group, um, find a place where people talk about oh, just about anything that people have been through. There are people gathering into groups and talking about it. Um, the Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, for me would have been a good one. Al-Anon for people who are families of, um, uh, you know, alcoholics or even families of people. What is it? The, the ones for codependent behavior now. Um, what is the name of that one? I can't think of it. Um, but they have communities, Life Ring, um, for people. So if you can't access one-on-one -on -one therapy, do that. Look up... Um, lists of cognitive distortions. These will help you identify the ways that you see the world and the ways that you see yourself that might not necessarily be true. Look up lists of logical fallacies. These are often used to drive you crazy by other people. You know, these are often used as ways to shut you down and they don't, they seem, they seem good sometimes. They seem logically sound if you don't know what to look for. These can help you manage interactions that tend to go bad. Um, these are all things that I've done. That the most powerful tool 
that, that therapy gave me was the ability to identify my own cognitive distortions and work mm-hmm. on retraining my neuro tendencies. And I'm not talking about neurotype. Don't, you know, like there are some people who just process as a base function at a different level. People who are on the spectrum, people with ADD, people with bipolar disorder, you know, these are neurotypes, but our neuro tendencies can be programmed. I'm autistic. Are you? Yes. Yeah. No, it's, it's beautiful. And they're testing me. Yeah. Um, we're supposed to be testing me for autism because my therapist thinks I might be on the spectrum. So. You might be autistic. Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. Let me get on my soapbox real quick. Sorry. It is not a person with autism. We are autistic. It is genetic. It is not because we got vaccinated because I didn't get vaccinated and I'm still fucking autistic. But okay. Second off, stop abusing your kids because they're autistic. Stop trying to give them the next freaking cure. Stop trying to make them be something that they're not. And accept your autistic kids for who they are. Your neurodivergent kids. Accept them for who they are. Love them as they are. You might be surprised what your children will accomplish in the world as if you accept them and support them in the ways that they can receive and accept support. Thank you. And, well, and there's there's some autistic people with very high levels of achievement, like Anthony Hopkins, um, Jerry Seinfeld. You know, like people, you can go on to be like really do really really great things with your life. It's not it's not a disability. It's a different way of processing. Well, I mean, okay, but it is a different way of processing that makes society look at you as in you're less capable because you don't do things the way, like for me, I struggle cleaning my goddamn house alone. I need a body double to help me do that. And if you don't know what that is, I'd invite you to Google it. It's basically like somebody like sitting with you or like being with you just so you can get this done. Because that like for some reason is like I just I just I struggle. I struggle cleaning my house. But the other thing I also wanted to ask is like so you mentioned like codependence. So, I mean. Like, here's the thing, though, is with that, like, I just want to bring up another gripe of mine about society. Society has this narrative that when we experience abuse, we are codependent in that and that we, in some ways, enabled the abuse. We, the the victims of the abuse. And my point with that is, is no, the fuck we did not. Because number yeah. one, no child asked to be abused. No child, no child. No child has ever in the history. We are literally learning from the people around us, as you mentioned earlier. We are not codependent in our own abuse. We do not have responsibility to take for being abused. I am not taking accountability for being the victim of abuse. You should never take accountability for being a victim of abuse. It is not your fault. We need to change the conversation from being about what was she wearing? What did you do? Well, what did you do to make him beat you like that? Or, well, you know, maybe you shouldn't have talked back or maybe you should have held your mouth. We need to change the conversation from that to that was wrong. What he did was wrong. Stop it. All of those are victim blaming statements. Okay, now we're really going to talk about like coping skills. Dark humor. Are you familiar with um, the work of Lundy Bancroft? I think Lundy Bancroft is really, really clear on this. And it, it, I think the, some of the writings of Lundy Bancroft has like been considered the gold standard when it comes to survivors of abuse, victim shaming. Um, and so there's, there's some really good stuff. And, and I believe that he defined it very clearly that victim blaming is anything that puts the blame even partially on the victim, even if they are, they are considered complicit in their own own victimization um and that's that's victim blaming and it's not it's not real because it's a relational system there is an attacker there's a primary antagonist and there is a defendant and that's how it works Uh uh-huh exactly that and yes i've read some of lundy bancroft yeah yeah um but i will say this like we need to change this we have another comment that says we need to change this what love wait it's not showing it we need to change this what love really is because too many people accept piss poor behavior as attempts to love yeah 
I like to say that I learned in therapy and through therapy and my life experiences that the bar is very high. Like if you expect me to devote a lot of energy to you, you're probably going to treat me in a way that makes me feel safe. You're going to treat me in a way that makes me feel heard and visible and respected. And yeah. also like you might be being honest. I appreciate honesty. Like that's, that's helpful. But back to the coping skills, dark humor. What do you think about that? Oh, I think it's a total, I mean, this goes all the way back to, to comedy, to the Greek schools. <laughs> and like we could go, we could go to like a thousand BC and start talking about where, where these were used to, to manage situations where dark humor, where comedy was used in response to, I mean, even cynicism. Like that was an actual school of philosophy. It wasn't what we think of, like somebody just being cynical and having this. It was actually a way to approach very, very difficult to manage situations and emotions. And it's, it's so there's a whole there are actual schools of logic built around comedy and cynicism. If you go if you go back to their origins, it's a very natural thing, and it, it's it's hard to like all of the different behavioral manifestations that we use to cope with trauma. It's they're they're hard. Like none of them are are clean. You know. Yep. Well, I just want to show you this. So, like, I told you I'm autistic. I do a lot of yeah. sleeping. Yeah. Okay. This is this is my emotional support rock that has joined us for this live stream today. Officially. Yeah. Do you, um, do you, do you have something you call the emotional support rock? Does the emotional support rock have a name? This is my emotional support rock. It's, no. it's emotional support rock. Yes. ESR. <laughs> yes. yes, I have my emotional support rock. I also have an emotional support animal. I have a um, thing about clothing and fabric and sensory things. So like a oh. lot of times, like if I'm going down a rabbit hole and I call it the spiral of destruction, the, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. When you're you yeah. hyper focused, hyper focused, hyper. Yeah. 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 So when I'm going down that like spiral of destruction where I feel like my life is fucking falling apart and I have like no nothing left to give the world and I just feel like all of this shit, what do I do? Well, for me, one of the things that is helpful is remembering that the changes since I started speaking public since like two publicly since like 2004 are vastly different. Like it is a vastly different world now than what it was back then. Yeah. I remember that. Um, another thing is, is I'll listen to like what's going around me. Can I hear the birds sing in the trees? Can I smell something good? Am I, what if I get a glass of ice and I have like um, ice that I'm, I'm able to put on my body or put in my mouth because that could like help me come back to the present where I'm not living back there where I'm in danger. Because yeah. I'm not actively in danger. It's more or less a trauma response, like you said earlier. So another thing is, is the sensory thing of like, I have specific fabrics that feel really, really good for me. And if I like use those fabrics while I'm in that state, it can really help me feel comforted and feel like I am, I am really safe. And sometimes I actively tell myself out loud, you are safe. I am safe. I am, I remind myself that I'm not back there. I'm not within the pages of my book right now. I don't live back there. Yeah. You're self-soothing. And, and so the question is, is like, what types of coping skills do we have? Like, do I write? Yes, I write. I've written more than 60,000 words in like the, since 2017 alone. And before that I had a whole stack of notebooks and I burned all of them. Oh, wow. What a, what a cathartic thing to do though. What a, what a release. What a like, I'm a new person. I am a completely different person and this is gone. And like, what a, what a symbolic, like rise from the ashes. That reminds me, Rumi. Rumi was teaching people, his father was a spiritual teacher, a spiritual guider, I know a guy like, yeah. And he was teaching people and he's sitting by a, a fountain. And this was the first time he met Shams Tabrizi who ended up being his spiritual mentor. And Shams took his books, and he pushed him in the fountain. He said, now go out there and live by the things you've been teaching, you know? And that's, that's almost what you went through. Almost seems like that kind of a thing where you like burned it all, where you put it all away. And now go out there and live what you've been teaching. Go out there and live what you believe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've burned, I burned um, 
that's that's another thing is I'm a big fan of burning things. Um, so I I think this is funny. Um, I wasn't allowed to have a lot of things that I had when I was Amish. Um, I had a quilt that I had made with my egg donor and she, um, I asked her for that quilt and she, um, decided that she was going to give me a different quilt that was associated with reliving traumatic events. And I hung on to that quilt for years. It was hand quilted and everything. Beautiful quilt. And one day I burned it all. I burned the uh, hand quilted quilt because I realized that, you know what? No matter what, even though this quilt probably it had like a hundred hours of labor put into it, that quilt was associated and affiliated with so much trauma, nobody needed that in their life. Yeah. And it yeah. felt right to burn it. So writing, burning shit, but what, what, what do we do? What do y'all do? What do y'all do to cope? I'm really sarcastic too. I love <laughs> me too. Me too. And I, I, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm okay with, I think humor challenges, um, uh, what is it called? Censorship too. And I, yeah. I think that that's, it's important. I think it is important to challenge censorship. I think you have to do it in a way that's constructive. I think there's a responsible, there's a, a, a level of responsibility there too. But I do think that we have to be able to express ourselves freely. I think we should be able to explore all of the topics, explore all of the, the areas, you know? Um, I garden, like I, I don't have one right now. I'm kind of in a transition, but I, I, I usually keep a garden. I have a bunch of seeds from all of my plants. I have cucumbers that I've put in year after year. I, I, I have about five years on the tomatoes I have now where I've dehybridized them and they're starting to become heirlooms. Um, oh, I have- amazing pumpkins yeah so gardening is that's where i find my center and i go out and i talk to the plants and i feel like they talk to me I, I listen to them and they tell me how they're doing and they tell me to move them they're like oh i would like to be a little bit over here i like to be a little bit over there i want to be in the shade can you put me in this plant pot with this other plant and i'll do it i'll listen to them i'll listen to what they want and sometimes i mess up you know but usually yep. I, I usually I do take good care of them yep yep um with that being said, like I have like talking about plants. So I have like all of these cactuses. I have like these Christmas cactuses and an Easter cactus. And then somebody sent me and an orange dreamsicle looking type of cactus. And I'm trying to make it grow. And hopefully I'll have two of those plants that maybe will bloom sometime next year. And then I have this huge, huge, like little heart shaped Ivy that was like, like it's like over six feet like it is huge and it's yeah. growing and growing and growing and you're right like sometimes I do mess up with plants I have a snake plant which is like has just grown and grown and grown it has like seven stalks in there now and it started out as one yeah I have a huge spider plant like that's 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 where I grow my things mostly is like inside and then um I'm trying to like make a rose grow outside so we're gonna see how that adventure goes but like plants are amazing plants are really amazing they have personalities and you know one of the things I do just just in case I mess up I like to take the first piece of fruit off of a plant and I freeze it and so that way I can always come back to it and and you can just take that piece of fruit itself frozen and put it in the soil and usually those seeds inside have split, you know, from the freeze and from the moisture content. And then they'll grow right up, you know, mm -hmm. they'll grow right up, right out of that fruit, that fruit itself, the, the, whatever it is, if it's a tomato, if it's a cucumber, it has the nutrition to help those plants grow. And so you'll get a little, right wherever you plant that fruit, you'll get a little like cluster of, of little sprouts. And then you slowly, you know, take the healthiest ones and you let them grow. And then, so even if I do mess up with the plant, I always have that that line. I think I have like 25 tomatoes in my freezer. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. Amazing. And then, yeah, they all came from three different, three different types of tomatoes. I couldn't tell you which ones are which anymore because they don't look like the tomatoes they originally came from. Like there was yeah. Romas and then there was beef steaks and then there was uh, better boys and yeah. none of them look anything like the tomatoes that they came from anymore. Oh, what bad. <clears throat> I, I, I do got to say this, like I really, really don't like tomatoes. 
<laughs> I have like an aversion to ketchup. Ketchup is disgusting. <laughs> yeah. I'm not a big ketchup fan, but I, I love tomatoes. I love, I make well, jambalaya and I'll, I'll do, and I, I, I live with, um, I rent from some vegans. So I've learned to cook most of my, my diet now is, is vegan. Um, not oh, wow. because I am personally a vegan, but because I live with them and I honor they're like, it's a spiritual thing for them. It's like a really deep truth. And so I've learned to make all types of foods and they have all types of really good food. So, but I love tomatoes. I love that's I like, like my baking favorite. things. Do you? Yes. That's, yes. that's chemistry. Like, that's like hard. It's, it's like, that's science. Making <laughs> <laughs> things is so cathartic though. But regardless yeah. of that, like, thank you so much for coming on here. Um, before we end this live, is there anything you would like to say to our viewers and listeners today? Um, yeah. And this is, this is something I say often is, um, if you're being hurt, if you're being, if, if something bad is happening to you, if you're, if you think you might be being abused or mistreated, tell somebody like find the, whoever you trust the most, the person who you think is the most wise. Um, if you don't have somebody immediately around you, go to an organization. Um, the, the DV, uh, domestic violence website has, has people you can just Tell, tell somebody and you don't have to report who you are. You don't have to, you could just let it out, get it out there. Like somebody should know. Nobody should suffer in silence. Nobody should feel like they have to be silent. Nobody should be protecting the people who are abusing them. And I understand that it can take a long time to get to that point. It took me a long time to even admit that what I was going through was, you know, like, I mean, looking back, like, and nobody in the world would ever say that it wasn't abuse, but like, it took me a long time to come to that. I was in my twenties before I ever start said that word about me, you know? And I, I remember being violently like throttled and smacked in the walls. And, and like, I still couldn't, I still couldn't admit it. You know, it was me, I was the problem. So you're not the problem. If you're being hurt by somebody and if it's systemic and there's a pattern of it, like talk to somebody, tell somebody, please. And get out if you can. It's like, no contact saves lives. Um, Telling people saves lives, telling and not just by somebody else's hand, but even by our own, you know, because I can't tell you how many times I was there. I was on the edge. I was ready to jump. And I thank God that I didn't. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. That's a really powerful like statement. And it really means a lot. And I'd like to echo that. I'd also like to um, just, again, say thank you to you for having this open dialogue. I really appreciate it. It means a lot to me, you know. I yeah. Like, um, but also thank you for the resources and to everybody that's listening to this, whether you're listening today or in the future, uh, you deserve to have healthy, happy and whole lives and you deserve to feel joy and value and meaning in your life. Even if that looks different from what my life looks like or what Kaylin's life look, looks like, you deserve that. You're a whole human being, just like we all are. And I'd like to thank our Patreon subscribers and the Misfit Amish for bringing us this live stream. I appreciate you. We couldn't do what we do without your support. Thank you. Have a good day. See y'all next time. Mm -hmm.